from PRX. Today on Studio 360. Every man at some point would say, or most of the men, not all of them, would say she was just so angry all the time. Noticing a pattern in contemporary divorces. But I couldn't believe how little examination of the anger question there was. I couldn't believe that nobody thought that they then had to explain, here's what she was angry about. Taffy brought us her Ackner on her super buzzy first novel, all about divorce. Fleischman is in trouble. Plus, John Cameron Mitchell first took his pitch for a musical TV series to Hollywood, but... My friend Michael Stuno invented the term resting pitch face, which is the face that people hold when you're telling them something they don't want to buy. How the star and creator of Hedwig and the Angry Inch ended up making an epic musical podcast. That's ahead in Studio 360, right after this. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. A few years ago, a lot of Taffy Broadusser Ackner's friends began telling her they were getting divorced. And I would listen to their stories, and I would look at their phones. They would show me their apps and all their dating, and it was, it was amazing. I couldn't believe, you know, I had begun to think that I was old. I had turned 40, and seeing them, I realized I was, actually I was quite young, and they were young, and they were going to have this whole new life. Life, just as a marriage and family comes apart, is the subject of Taffy Broadusser Ackner's first novel, Fleischman is in Trouble. Until now, she's been strictly a journalist, one of the best at what she does, earlier at GQ magazine, now as a staff writer at the New York Times magazine. Her witty, very smart articles get widely shared, such as her look a couple of years ago at Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop, her preposterously successful lifestyle brand. But in her first novel, Taffy Broadusser Ackner focuses on the misadventures of a suddenly single father, this nice guy who feels badly mistreated. Toby is a hepatologist, which is a liver specialist. He grew up in a Jewish family in California, very short. And his height is, in his own mind, his defining characteristic. He is recently separated from his wife, Rachel, and they live on the Upper East Side. and Of Manhattan, New York City. Manhattan, New York City. And the main tension in their marriage was the sort of distribution of responsibilities in this new age. And also under the circumstance of his wife being far more successful and much more ambitious than he was. Yes. Some of the, of the funniest and most tragic parts of this novel are about Toby using dating apps, Tinder-like, mm-hmm. Grindr-like, Bumble-like, I don't know yeah. what they are all, uh, for the first time since, as a single man, since this all came along after he was married. Right. At first, the thing that lit me on fire about this were the apps, the idea that back when we were all dating in the first place, you had to show up in your disgusting human body and try not to look too needy in your eyes. Or disappointed. And disappointed or just like, and be casual. And here now, everything had shifted so that you were supposed to lead with your desire, either your desire for companionship or your desire for sex or your desire for love, which was a thing you had to pretend you didn't want. 
back then. And the idea that on a Saturday night, like you could be catching up on Game of Thrones while also seducing people or being seduced was crazy to me and so exciting. Some of the best moments in this dirty, dirty book can't be broadcast uh, uh, on, a, on a radio with the FCC uh, Sorry, Mom. involved. Um, but I'd love you to read the opening paragraph of the book. Toby Fleischman awoke one morning inside the city he'd lived in all his adult life and which was suddenly somehow now crawling with women who wanted him. Not just any women, but women who were self-actualized and independent and knew what they wanted. Women who weren't needy or insecure or self-doubting, like the long-ago prospects of his long-gone youth. Meaning, the women he had thought of as prospects, but who had never given him even a first glance. No, these were women who were motivated and available and interesting and interested and exciting and excited. These were women who would not so much wait for you to call them one or two or three socially acceptable days after you met them, as much as send you pictures of their genitals the day before. Women who were open-minded and up for anything and vocal about their desires and needs and used phrases like, put my cards on the table and no strings attached, and I need to be done in 10 because I have to pick up Bella from ballet. Women who would fuck you like they owed you money was how our friend Seth put it. That is Taffy brought us her Ackner reading from the first page of her first novel, Fleischman is in Trouble. But what about dating apps? I mean, you've been married a long time. Oh, yeah. So research must have been involved. Research was involved. I did go on some apps briefly. Not as yourself. I didn't use my name. But I your, used, your real picture? No. I used one picture of myself that was, you, I don't, th- unless you knew me very right. well. It was an obscured picture of me. Did it you go not, on as a man as well? I did go on as a man yeah. as well. And I like the things that, it, it was like a marketplace. The amount of, of sexual favors being asked, the amount of pictures of penises that were delivered to me as a seductive measure. It was like in real life. The very aggressive men led with that. The very aggressive women led with that. Some women were more demure. Some men were more demure. Some women were so scarred from every picture they'd been sent that they led with, please do not send me any pictures of your body parts. I am looking to date. I am looking for marriage. I'm looking for love. So therefore, how you depict Toby's wading into this new world to him is more or less an accurate... journalism. Is it? It is. It's like, this is what I saw. This is really what I saw. So the protagonist, you know, he's a doctor. He's making plenty of money. He's successful by any reasonable measure, but he he feels resentful and undervalued as the spouse, more like the conventional, traditional, undervalued wife. Right. In this rash of divorces I was hearing about, nobody ever said it was because she was more successful or she was more ambitious, but it was always the case. And Really? Yeah. In all of the marriages, that is what... I observed. And that is the thing that that nobody ever spoke about. And that was the thing that was most interesting to me. That's very interesting. Then there's the question of, is that just the circle you inhabit? Or maybe there's just a sea change in, in gender and in marriage, where you have these women who were raised with this idea that they could do anything and they could be anything. And one of you is going to be president one day. That's what I was told. And then I think at the same time, Nobody told the men we were being told that. And so the men who are all liberals and they're all open-minded and they think of themselves as feminists, and maybe they are, they came up through the system 
thinking that they would have a version of the wife that they had as a mother. And the women were supposed to do all these things and also still have a martini ready for them at the end of the day. And nobody ever said, like, what if you don't get home in time for the martini? Why doesn't the woman get the martini? Why does anyone get a martini? I was raised on this song, which was then appropriated for some kind of commercial. I can bring home the bacon. Fry it up in a pan. And never, never, never let you forget your romance. Because I'm a woman. Jolie, the eight-hour perfume for your 24-hour woman. And all I could think when I heard that song was like, that's too much. Like, why, why should I want to do all those things? Shouldn't I want to be successful in my career so I don't have to do that kind of crap anymore? So Toby's particular resentment of his very ambitious wife, that wasn't made up out of whole cloth in your head. Not at all. Every man at some point would say, or most of the men, not all of them, would say she was just so angry all the time. But... I couldn't believe how little examination of the anger question there was. I couldn't believe that nobody thought that they then had to explain, here's what she was angry about. It was like a full stop indictment of a person who was angry. It was as, a trait rather was, yeah, than a thing that yeah, was caused like by I something. Like I hadn't noticed she was angry all right, this time right. and here she's angry as opposed to, I wonder what made you angry. Yeah. It, it raises all kinds of interesting questions. The fact that you are a woman, a successful professional woman writing the novel from pretty much from his perspective. It's right. very much the male point yes. of view of being betrayed and misunderstood by this right. wife whom we barely ever see. Yeah. She's, she's off. Um, was it easy for you to get into his head? And like, I know how dudes think. I think so. I spent a lot of years at GQ and I was reared on the the Bitter Man novel, you know, on Updike and on Roth and all of that. And, and I was very comfortable in that point of view, I think way more than I would have been in the woman's point of view. I don't think I could have properly separated myself and created a full character. That was the exercise. Can you embody somebody who isn't at all you? Toby is the protagonist. It's as though he's the narrator. He's not. It's as though he's the main character by an omniscient narrator, and he's not because it's narrated by a friend of his, Mm -hmm. uh, a woman named Libby, who is well, she is a 40-ish journalist and mother living in New Jersey. Uh, so are you. <laughs> but she's an ex-journalist. She, like, the defining feature that anyone would tell you about me is my ambition and my output and how prolific I am. And that's, that was the thing I pulled away from her. But she, I mean, the narration is omniscient. I mean, all but. She, the narrator, really knows what Toby is thinking and doing at every right. second. Why not just have, as novels have done for centuries, uh, an omniscient voice? Because there was a bigger point that I was making. Because the point of the story is to ask who we believe about what. And, and who is unreliable. And who is unreliable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, who, and how much can you listen to somebody before you start to realize there are holes. I think about this when I write profiles a lot. I think about, well, what would the other side be of this? When I listen to any story that someone tells me, when I listen to one of my sons rat out the other of my sons, what would he say about this? What are the mitigating circumstances? And I think every great story lies in its mitigating circumstances. There is a point uh, where Libby, the narrator and former men's magazine journalist who is not you, (laughs) talks uh, in a very like you way about how she profiled men. Uh, I'd love you to read a bit of that. Sure. 
That was what I knew for sure, that this was the only way to get someone to listen to a woman, to tell her story through a man. Trojan horse yourself into a man, and people would give a shit about you. Did you understand that that's what you were doing or conceive that that's what you were doing as you were profiling all these men for GQ and then say, oh, I'm going to use that when I do this novel and and do this Trojan horse thing by making the man the protagonist and interestingly tricking people? I'll tell you, I didn't realize I had done it here until it was done. The first draft of the novel was not first person. Libby was just a character. And I don't know if I realized that at GQ. I know that it was easier to write about men at a certain point a few years ago when I started because you could write about their souls. When you wrote about a woman, you had to write about the degree of difficulty it took for her to get to the place where you were even interviewing her. How did a woman do this? Right. So it is about divorce. Did you start out saying, oh, this is going to be a collapsed marriage? No. This was supposed to be a novel about marriage. And then I realized it was a novel about divorce. And one day I went to my husband and I said, I have some bad news. My marriage novel is actually a divorce novel. I hope that's okay with you. And he said, you know, a lot of people's first novel is a coming-of-age novel. Could you have maybe thought about that? And... People ask him very often, are you upset that your wife's novel is a divorce novel? And he says, oh, no, this isn't about us. She's obsessed with divorce. She has been obsessed with divorce for a very, very long time. My parents got divorced when I was six, so there's a lot of divorce in my family. And I think I've always been kind of in front of how does this happen? How is it that these weddings that I went to, that I cried at, that were beautiful, that defined love for me, have now collapsed. And how can you prevent that from happening to yourself? Are there depictions of divorce in films, in television, in fiction that you think, wow, that gets it. That's interesting. Yes. Mad Men. Mad Men was the best one. Mad Men was from the time they sat the kids down to tell them. Well, it's, it's going to be a little bit of a change. But your father's going to be moving out. I howled that night. I can cry just thinking about it right now. That, like, I... It was such a simple scene where they sit down and they tell the kids, it's over. I love you both. Then why are you going? I'm not going. I'm just living elsewhere. That's going. You say things and you don't mean them. And you can't just do that. And that's also how it happened for us. You know, we didn't find out, incidentally. Our parents told us... But I never realized I hung on to those things. And sure, the Mad Men thing would kind of take me by surprise. But I'm 43. My parents got divorced when I was six. I am so judgmental of people who bring up their childhoods all the time and the slights of their childhoods that are kind of only medium traumatic. And I can't believe how much that affected me. And I watched them throughout the rest of the seasons hate each other and not get back together, except sometimes have a moment, but not really. That, to me, was what divorce is. You've written elsewhere in some of your uh, excellent recent journalism about kind of how you plotted your escape as a child from mm -hmm. from Jewish orthodoxy, essentially, yes. in this world in which you were being brought up when your mother became more orthodox after she, she became was orthodox. Divorced. Yeah. Oh. I was sure that I was going to get out into the world like a newborn chick and not know what to do. 
so I would watch television to learn what teenagers wore and how they interacted. And then one day I came upon 30-something, and I felt that this was a group of yuppies I can get behind. And I am going to use them as my training manual for adulthood. And and beyond this is how secular people in the real world who are successful should live. Did it affect your sense of marriage it, uh, in it real did. life? It did. It made. I went back recently to revisit what I had learned from it. And what I learned was that in those characters existed a self-control and a passivity that I am not capable of. You know, a brooding until you erupt. You don't like my working? No, I love your working. It's just... Uh... I'm not here to make dinner. No, you're just not here to talk to me. Things are happening at work, aren't they? Yeah. I'm sorry. Whereas my husband will tell you that I am like someone who can immediately metabolize a slight and confront immediately. Like I immediately say the thing that's wrong. Oh, I thought we had agreed to this and I thought yeah. we had And I... You're so angry. <laughs> I am. <laughs> so in, in your novel, Toby's marriage is collapsing. His friend Libby's marriage looks... Kind of iffy. Mm-hmm. The other main character, their their friend Seth, mm-hmm. looks like he's headed into a bad marriage, probably. Right. So, I mean, what is your feeling about about marriage? That it's really tough, but worth it when you can make it work. Um, when I wrote this, I didn't have questions about marriage when I started it, but the more I stared at it, the more I wondered. Why is this still a thing? It's religious. It's governmental. It's the things that we've we've rejected. What a twee artifact, right? Yeah. Like, why are we? Why is this still the standard? Why is this still the thing everyone wants to do and to be able to do? Why are we still gathering to do this? Why are we still filling out the paperwork? What was your answer to that? I mean, there are, there are noble, romantic, heroic answers to it, and then there are well, like it's a lot easier to raise kids with two people. So all of those <laughs> things, and the thing that it came down to is said in the book that it's like that quote about democracy. It's the worst form of government other than all the other forms of government. Right. Taffy Brodesser Ackner, what a, what a delight. Thank you so much. Taffy's book, Fleischman is in Trouble, is available everywhere now. The end of love is a guarantee that no one will ever look. Coming up next, the creator of Hedwig and the Angry Inch explains how he decided to create a musical theatrical podcast and how he got stars like Glenn Close and Patti LuPone to sign on. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. This is not your father's musical theater. Or at least not your grandfather's. This is Hedwig and the Angry Inch, the highly idiosyncratic 1998 musical about a punk rocker transplanted from East Germany to America after a botched sex change surgery. It became and remains a genuine cult hit playing all over the world, including, a few years ago, a a Tony Award-winning revival on Broadway that starred its co-creator, John Cameron Mitchell. He also directed the movie version of Hedwig and three other films since. 
You've also probably seen him acting on television. He's had recurring roles on Girls and Mozart in the Jungle and lately on The Good Fight. And now John Cameron Mitchell has created a new highly idiosyncratic musical, a 10-episode musical podcast. It's called Anthem, Homunculus, and it's a collaboration with composer Brian Weller, in which John's co-stars include Patti Lapone and Glenn Close. I spoke with both co-authors about their musical, the premise of which is a guy hosting a kind of online radio show to raise money for his cancer treatment, a guy played by John. My name is Kian, which means head in Gaelic, and I have a brain tumor. But I'm having a good day. I've got a lot of energy, and I want all five, four of you still listening to know I will remain online and on this porch till you cough up the hundred grand I need to cut this fucker out. (laughs) Or till I die. Whichever comes first. Now, I wrote this song for my tumor. It's actually a conversation between my tumor and me. Because I figured if my tumor could sing, it might sing something like this. I'm the mold on your bread, the prebros on your head, the pause in the joke that makes you cry till you choke. As a lover, I'm unsurpassed, but I come first and you go last. Uh, that is John Cameron Mitchell in Anthem, Homunculus. Um, so, John uh, and Brian, this framing device, this this audio podcast telephone, telephone. Uh, um, where did that come from? It came from the stupid reality of America um, where friends of ours, and we all know someone who's had to crowdfund their health care uh, in this absurd rich country with priorities upside down, and also, I've been on tour doing the songs and stories of Hedvig on concert tour uh, to help pay for my mom's care. You know, she has Alzheimer's. And this isn't a necessarily political piece, but that framing device of a kind of upside-down America uh, is where he lives. And, and it, the whole thing is kind of an alternative autobiography. Uh-huh. It's what I might be like if I hadn't left my small town. Right. So as a maker of films and live theater, how and why did you end up doing this as a podcast? Well, it started out actually as a possible sequel to Hedvig and the Angry Inch. But Hedvig already had so much baggage, so I decided to extract Hedvig like a benign tumor and focus on it closer to me. Uh Uh-huh. because it was so autobiographical, it was very emotionally draining. So I'm like, oh, I don't want to do this eight shows a week. So then I thought television. Right. Um, and wrote it as such. The whole 10 episodes uh-huh. went to Hollywood. And we, uh, my friend Michael Stuno uh, invented the term resting pitch face, which is the face That's funny. that people hold when you're telling them something they don't want to buy. And <laughs> That's a very funny Yawning phrase. on the inside. And we saw them all glaze over respectfully because they couldn't place it. So Topic Studios immediately, when L.A. says no, New York says yes, immediately says, let's do this as a podcast. Brian, how did you enter this collaboration? How did that come to be? We met in Portland, Oregon, 2011, and uh, I was working the venue and John was um, hosting a 
gay tsunami of a party. It was, I was DJing and he was working the rock venue. And we started working in various capacities. On paper, I'd say it was assistant, but in practice, it was more like psychoanalyst. And uh-huh. then um, we did How to Talk to Girls in London, and I wrote six songs or something. That's How to Talk to Girls at Parties, John's movie about extraterrestrials in the 1970s London punk scene. Yeah, he was assisting me, but the composer fell out and he stepped in and the songs were fantastic. And when I came out of it, I, I was like, why am I seeking a composer in the stars? And then when, there's a brilliant person right next to me. Um, Brian, were you, when did you first encounter uh, Hedvig? I, I presume you, you knew of it, had heard it, had seen it before I, you guys yeah, ever... I think it came out when I was in eighth grade. And, it's uh, a good time to see it. And I was, I was reading... It in the Seattle Times about it. And I think the way they were writing about it, I wasn't sure if it was a documentary and if John was actually a woman. But yeah. no, I, I don't think I'd seen it. But I mean, I was privy that it was an experience that was both emotionally deep and rich as well as intellectually stimulating. And that was right, right up my alley. Right. In this show, are there, given that you began it as this Hedwig sequel, are there remnants of that initial inception that remain? Yes, there's some lines that I actually tested out on Broadway uh, that are, you know, the more the double entendre drag inspired, you know, my character talks about disaster baiting and, you know, had a bad year, he hit his bottom, his bottom hit him back. So there was, you know, the drag. (laughs) But a dumb. But a cat. Uh, so a lot of that, those gags are still in there. They're Hedvig. They're also right. my queer Borscht Belt yeah. sensibility. Yeah. Where is the queer Borscht Belt, by the way? Where does um, that th- where? It's, I think it sort of goes from Christopher Street into Williamsburg. Yes. <laughs> so taking autobiographical material in your early 30s, as you did with Hedvig, it must be different this time in your mid-50s to be revisiting your youth in, in this way. Yeah, because, you know, the second half of your life is suffused with death and mortality and, oh, what happened to me and how much time is left? And I have to say probably the impetus for doing it, and I don't know why I was so bent on doing it because it is painful to do, was the death of my boyfriend, uh, Jack Steeb. He was an alcoholic and he eventually died from a drug combination in 2004 and this character of Jairo is a incarnation of him. Jairo, your character's love interest. Yes. Um, I lost a brother when I was 14. My my dad was an army general, played by Dennis O'Hare. You know, his journey is in there. My mom was a Scottish artist teacher who was also an anti-abortion activist, and Glenn Close plays her. My aunt is a nun, super liberal, awesome nun in Chicago, and Patty LuPone plays her. So at times, the hard stuff was hard to, to relive, and doing it last year wasn't fun. Like I, It kind of like shut me down emotionally, but I always had the thing. You always had the podcast to keep me warm. You know, that was my, my lover. And now that it's ended, I can date again, uh-huh. literally, yeah. you know, and I feel free. Um. These stars, Glenn Close, Patti LuPone, Cynthia Erivo, Laurie Anderson, Marion Cotillard. How did you get such an all-star cast? Well, Just they're all people or? that I know. Uh-huh. Um, some are friends and some are acquaintances. And they were all... Nice bunch of friends. Yeah, well, they were all big 
fans of Hedvig. And when you just say, you know, honey, you don't have to shave. It's two days' work. Bring your dog. <laughs> Whatever hair you have yeah. is fine. Then they're like, ooh, it's just pure acting. Right. And they're all theater people, too. So it's like it's put on, let's put put on, on a show. A show. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you are going to perform a song right here live uh, from the show. Uh, explain what you're going to play and um, set the scene. What's the, what, 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 where, where does this come? What's it doing? Uh, the song is called The End of Love. The End of Love it comes around the midpoint of the story where Kean is sort of reflecting on a wide uh, span of his life from basically becoming an adult to a point where he's submitting some kind of defeat. It's a little bit of also a breakup song with God. And I grew up super Catholic, and Jesus was my first crush. And uh, there were key moments when he wasn't there anymore. You know, all those things that kind of push you away from religion and make you redefine God or erase, let go of God. I prefer the redefinition. Let's hear End of Love. about you I think it's all been said before the words rang true what were they for you were a small disappointment careless hand on the thigh sweet inferred words that were never implied who could frame the fearful asymmetry between lust and love it's got the synapse or the thought Caught between what you want and what you bought Are you the final thread That binds the failing world to me Baby, is that all you want to be? The end of love is A terrace grief that's like a drip down the mountain Fills an ocean I carry you over the water You grow heavier with every step Until you drag me down as sure as Ophelia's dress Grant me existence When a random thought of me Shot through your mind Like a wasp Right through a web You clothed me in life But my garment strangles me Like Desdemona Struggling with fortune And seeking a lover's eyes Is a mayfly tenure The best that you can offer me you're so wisely absent from past or future But to me, you're nothing but a suture To prevent their blending Though my heart seems to be rending now The longer I sit in my lonely room Honey, you're the only lover that I believe in The end of love is 
a guarantee that no one will ever look away from me and though I dance with a ghost no one else comes close to how to how to how you love me here in Studio 360. That was John Cameron Mitchell singing Brian Weller on guitar and Brian Cavanaugh-Strong on piano, playing End of Love from the new podcast Anthem Homunculus, including Latin lyrics. I always am a sucker for Latin in a song. Deus ex machina. Exactly. (laughs) So uh, that's called End of Love, or The End of Love. The End of Love. Um, I couldn't help but think of the Hedwig song, uh, The Origin of Love, Self-homage? Hedwig was about the first half of your life, which is who am I and do I like that person? And the second half of your life is usually what do I do with that knowledge with the time I have left? And uh, they say youth is wasted on the young, but sometimes age is wasted on the old, you know, and you're not taking advantage of what you know uh, or what you don't know because, you know, you seem to know a lot when you're young and and then you know less and less. Right. Uh, writing the music. Uh, did you, Brian, write the music and, and you, John, wrote the lyrics? How did that work? Well, we started uh, a little game, which was to try and write 20 songs in 12 hours, bringing no pre-existing lyrics or melodic elements in. And with that, it would be me writing the music and John in another room writing the lyrics. And Brian really broke my block of saying... I. I that I couldn't write songs because I couldn't play an instrument, you know. But I realized that with his help, we could write wonderful things. And we wrote we wrote songs for my mom. We would write songs for people's birthdays too. And I, I want somebody to hang around with me who can make up for my lack of musicality and just like be that tool. I'll be here. Kurt. <laughs> okay, thank you. Having a, a series rather than a two-hour show certainly gave you. Freedom to like, well, have a little punk, a little jazz, a little this, a little emo yeah. that you couldn't have done except in a sort of 10 episode thing, right? Or a multi episode. Well, I mean, Hedvig had a pretty eclectic score, though. Not, it was this, not, not as eclectic yeah. as this. That was more in the form by the great 70s, you know, Bowie, Lou Reed, John Lennon. In this case, we didn't want to limit ourselves, and Brian had the capacity, you know, to, to do all this. For example, Glenn Close uh, plays my mom, and in a hallucination, she is nailing herself to a cross. 
I want a hug. She's like, I'm nailed to a cross. Uh, and then she sings a kind of punk, you know, misfits type song called Dissolve Me, which is all about you will forgive me or else. And she'd never sung punk, but it was just right for her character. Um, now, we are already at the stage in podcast evolution where podcasts are podcasts, and then they become important television shows and movies. Do you expect or hope that that will that be— That 360 becomes Yes, the that's what I'm asking. <laughs> no, that, that anthem, homunculus, uh, becomes a TV series. Well— what do you think? What would you want? I'm open to anything. I love this medium. I want to make more. I want to encourage more friends to make Great. fictional stuff. Um, Anthem, we want every season to be a completely different musical written by different people. So we just did the first season, but we want other people, Kendrick Lamar, to make our next season. Oh, that's interesting. So it'll be Anthem colon something else. Yes. I mean, huh. it does take a while to create you know, something like this, and sometimes... Regular music people don't understand the amount of work. You know, they're like, "But right. I wrote the song." And like, "Yeah, but right. it has to fit into the story." I think once it's out, we'll we'll have a lot of people wanting to do it. Uh, this was a pleasure, John. Thank Cameron you, Mitchell, Brian Weller. Thanks, uh, Kurt. Thank you very much. Reminded after how, well, however many years ago that we last spoke, John, uh, why and how much I like you. So oh, thanks for coming. Thank back. you so much. Anthem Homunculus, produced by Topic Studios, is available now on the Luminary Subscription Podcast Network. Coming up next, when your kid's fourth grade teacher who says things like this... It's a great privilege to be at the school that I'm at because we've always been thought of as very warm in a loving environment for families and students. Also has a career playing music like this. The doom metal guitarist who also has a very interesting take on the hall pass. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. Remember the feeling when you were a kid, 10 or 12, running into one of your teachers outside of school and how incongruous and weird that was? Maybe the teacher was holding hands with his spouse or goofing around with her own kids or just doing something totally unteacher-like, like throwing a Frisbee on the beach in a bathing suit. Today, if you happen to have a kid in Mr. Von Till's fourth grade class in Garwood Elementary School outside Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, then seeing what he's up to outside the classroom might be really surprising. For the latest installment of our series Day Jobs, about work that artists do to pay the bills, we start with some of Mr. Von Till's students. Mr. Von Till's nice. He lets me do my work on my own time. 
and he has mystical creatures. Dun, dun, dun. Um, he actually has pine cones as our hall passes, which is actually amazing. He makes learning lots of fun. Every day I go to school, it makes me happy to think about the day that we might have. I'm definitely aware that I don't look like your stereotypical elementary school teacher. I'm heavily tattooed, I have a long beard, I'm bald. I definitely have a preference for black jeans and t-shirts. But kids don't care about that at all. They just see you for who you are. They do not have the ego traps that adults have. My name is Steve Von Till. I am a guitarist and singer in the group Neurosis. And I am also an elementary school teacher and have been for the last almost 19 years. I joined Neurosis in 1989, about four years into their existence. And at the time, we were all part of this Bay Area DIY punk rock movement when they needed to replace their second guitarist. I was lucky enough to get that spot. A bigger heavy metal band, probably one of the biggest at that time, Pantera, took us out later on in the 90s, as well as we were on an Ozfest an entire month playing with Black Sabbath and Ozzy. Doing two 20-minute sets a day to completely unsuspecting mainstream audiences with our feral, intense, what they must have thought is noise. While musically and artistically we felt we were peaking and still had more peaks to reach, Lifestyle-wise, we'd seen the same gas station truck stop mart in Indiana four or five times in the same year. We weren't at home being good fathers, being good husbands. We were, you know, actually digging debt, you know, borrowing money from record labels to stay on tour to open for bands. It seemed unsustainable. In the best case, we probably would have made artistic compromises that I can't imagine living with. In the worst case, we would have imploded. It would be better if we walk the other direction a few steps and find balance between work, family, and art. In 1999, when we decided that we were getting off the road, um, I had to contemplate what was my job going to be? What was I going to do to pay the bills for the family? Um, if we weren't on tour all the time. The school district where I went to elementary school was desperate for teachers. And that if you had a, any four-year college degree, you could get in a classroom and take your education classes at night. So almost before I had had a chance to make it a preconceived idea, I was in a classroom. The kids will show up at 8.30 and line up outside the door and we'll look each other in the eye and, and say good morning and shake hands as they enter the classroom every morning. I teach fourth grade. Kids are nine turning 10 throughout the year. It's a great privilege to be at the school that I'm at because we've always been thought of as very warm and a loving environment for families and students. Everybody, let's... Uh, Sit quietly and relax 
and practice a little mindfulness on this Monday. I've got no need to promote my music to nine-year-olds. <laughs> but they all do know that I am passionate about music, that occasionally I take some days off to go travel, and that I have, I have played around the world in a rock band. But I just play it low-key. It's just part of what I do. And as you're breathing in, feel your lungs expand as they fill with air. When I am lucky enough to be able to travel, I can come back and share stories with my students of, hey, I just got back from Japan and I saw this temple and I brought some pictures to show you guys and I, I brought you all a little you know, piece of candy from Japan. I can share my own stories that I've visited these places and hopefully inspire a curiosity about the wider world. As an educator, we always hope that we will inspire the desire to be a lifelong learner. And as you push, press the key up towards yourself, in a science lesson, for example, if we're talking about waves and sound waves, you know, then I can bring in interesting in instruments from home and we can talk about how they uh, might generate their sound, how it all works. How is the, the string vibrating the air molecules and getting to our eardrums? And that'll go off onto a tangent where we might get on uh, the internet and take a virtual field trip to Tuva and listen to some throat singing. Or go to Japan and listen to some taiko drumming. Something, again, that just broadens the experience and the curiosity in the world based on something as simple as sound waves. Stand by, and we're rolling. Almost every day, my students and I will take 10 minutes and sing some folk songs. And I think the heritage of American folk music is an interesting part of our culture to pass on as well, even if it's just through a little exposure. And when we sing it, it's really fun for some of the people who either want to pursue singing into a career or just like singing. I think it's like pretty crazy because he's a rock star and he's a teacher. He's a great teacher and he does so many things that other teachers don't do unless it's a special day. I think it, it sets an interesting example for students that they see professional musicians and artists are also working people that don't necessarily earn a living from their art, that they need to carry on with, quote, regular jobs to support their families, that not everybody is a celebrity or a rock star. So I think it's important for them to see that you can follow your dreams, follow your passion, even if it doesn't necessarily pay the way. You do it because you're driven to do it. children have a lot to do with me keeping this perspective is to never losing my sense of wonder 
and to never lose my sense of curiosity as a musician and as a teacher. Von Till and his fourth grade class, who just finished the school year. Congratulations at Garwood Elementary School in Rathdrum, Idaho, singing Wild Mountain Time. This summer, Mr. Von Till is performing across Europe and the United States with the band Neurosis. His latest solo album is called A Life Unto Itself. Our story was produced by Stephen Cueva. Do you happen to know a performer or creator who's got an interesting or somehow surprising day job? Maybe you yourself are an epic poet who by day is an exterminator. Whatever it is, tell us all about it at incoming at studio360.org. And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is Sandra Lopez Monsalve. Our producers are Tommy Bazarian, Evan Chung, Morgan Flannery, Lauren Hansen, Sam Kim, Zoe Saunders. I'm Kurt Anderson. And he has mystical creatures and Thanks very much for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. In Los Spookies, I play Andres. He is the adopted heir to a chocolate empire. The creators and stars of the new HBO comedy series Los Spookies. He is the kind of person who I'm attracted to, which is humorless. He's sort of like the human version of a painting couch. That's next time on Studio 360.